0: If you've been with us throughout this series, this is it. This is the final installment of our uh, eight-week series through this New Testament letter of First Peter. Let me tell you what you can expect today. Uh, we're going to start off going down something. It might feel like a pointless rabbit trail to you, but if you hang with me, I think, I can promise you, it's going to end up at a place that's very practical and I think will be very encouraging uh, to many of you. After that, we're going to have a section this is going to be challenging. Some of you actually might walk out of here saying, Rick, I cannot believe you. And then at the end, for every single person, every single person who is a follower of Jesus, you should walk out of here today deeply and profoundly inspired. And if there's anyone in the room today or anybody who's watching online and you're not sure what you, what, how you feel, if you're comfortable with church today, you get, to, you get a backstage pass. You get to see how we intend to operate as a church and really who's responsible for what, who's in charge around here. So to, to examine all of this, we're going to dive into 1 Peter chapter 5. Verse 1 says this, To the elders among you, You will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Now, when I read this, there's a question that just jumps off the page at me. And for you, maybe it's a boring question. Like I said, we're going to start going down what might feel like a pointless rabbit trail. But I promise you, it is worth your time. And it is worth your attention. Can I share with you the question? If Peter was an apostle, why did he refer to himself as an elder, Now, we tend to think in titles, don't we? Who has which title for what position? It wasn't exactly like that in the New Testament and in the very first churches. They often thought in and they often communicated with descriptive terms, and they used those terms fluidly. They used those terms interchangeably. And honestly, the way they talked about leaders and leadership, it's kind of confusing for the way we operate in our culture. I got a little Bible trivia for you. Maybe you can write your answer down. You can be in competition with the person next to you. How many people called elders are specifically named or identified in the New Testament? Whenever you read elder in the New Testament, elder, pastor, it's essentially the same, it is the same thing. How many are specifically named? If you wrote down one, you'd be correct, just one. And it happened right here when Peter says, I am a fellow elder. No other other elder, no other pastor of a church is ever specifically identified or named. In a local church, there would be people who served as pastors, and there would be people who served as deacons. There are a lot of deacons named. There's a guy named Stephen. He was a deacon. There's a woman named Phoebe. She was a deacon. Believe it or not, in Ephesians, the apostle Paul referred to himself as a deacon of the gospel. They use these these terms descriptively, and they use them fluidly. And quite honestly, it messes with our perception, doesn't it? Especially if we kind of grew up in church and we're accustomed to, there's a very clear leadership structure, and it's fixed. You should read Romans chapter 16. In Romans chapter 16, the apostle Paul sets out to honor a bunch of men and women who are leaders in church and leaders in the ministry. He lists off twice as many men as he does women, but he honors twice as many women as he does men, and this is how it happens in our culture. If we want to honor somebody, we want to we introduce them with their title first and their name second. You just met our new Family Ministries pastor Rob, right? But it's not exactly how it happened in the old. Excuse me, in the in the New Testament. So you read Romans chapter 16. The Apostle Paul, he honors all of these men and women and with almost all of them, he describes them with just one word. He calls them my fellow coworkers along with me. And I'm gonna ask you to lean in. This might be a really big deal because the way that they talked about leaders and leadership in the New Testament is different than the way we do it in our culture. I want you to write this down. In the New Testament, multiple terms are used to describe a singular position. Multiple terms are used to describe one singular position. Everything that we mean when we say pastor was communicated with three words in the New Testament, and these are those three words, presbyteros, episkopos, and poimen. From presbyteros, we get our English word elder or priest, from Episcopos we get our word overseer or bishop. From main, we get our English words shepherd or pastor. They are not three different roles in the church. They're all talking about one role in the church, but use three different words interchangeably, fluidly, to talk about it. The Apostle Paul used these three words interchangeably to talk about the one leadership office of pastor. Peter, the Apostle Peter, in this letter that we just read, he used these three terms interchangeably to talk about the singular position of leadership in the local church that we commonly refer to as pastor. Now, multiple people would occupy this position of leadership at the same time because from the jump, from the very beginning, pastoral ministry was done in partnership. But they're not describing multiple offices. They're describing one single kind of of leadership position as a matter of fact we see these three words right here and the passage we just read from peter he starts off he says to my fellow elders verse 2 he says be shepherds of god's flock this is poimen under your care watching over them this is episkopos we're going to can you guys stand a little uh, grammar nerd moment can we do that elder only shows up in the noun form but the word uh, episkopos uh, overseer and poremain shepherd it has a noun form and a verb form and the reason is because it's not just describing people it's describing the actions and the responsibilities of those people and so it's totally right it's totally appropriate to read this as elders, you are pastors or shepherd, so pastor and shepherd the people under your care. Elders, you are overseers, so oversee the people who are under your care. And if you're like, wait a second, Rick, I thought that these were I thought these were different positions in the New Testament. I get it. And I don't want anybody to feel confused or upset or feel like you've been kind of messed with or, or misled before. And if you're feeling that right now, I think I can illustrate why some of us might have a dent in our brain this morning. This is you. Let's let this image represent where you live in the world and your cultural experiences. Let's let this represent your experiences with church and church leadership. What do you think this represents? Oh, you're smart crap. This is is natural. This is what almost everybody does just without even thinking about it. We read the Bible through the lens of our cultural experiences and through the lens of our experiences with church and church leadership. Small problem, that's the wrong way to do it. It's understandable, but it's unhelpful. Instead, this is what we should do. We work to understand what biblical writers meant, and as we read the Bible, we use that to evaluate our cultural experiences, and our experiences with church and church leadership. And that is what we are doing together right now. In the New Testament, multiple terms used to describe one singular position, and these are those three positions. Excuse me, those are those three words. Not three positions of leadership. One singular position of leadership described by three words. But that creates a question, doesn't it? And the question is this, why did these interchangeable terms for one position become titles for different positions? Whenever a church grows, just like any organization, whenever a church grows, it's got to do the work of providing organizational and leadership clarity. Do you know what happens if it doesn't? 100% of the time, it will devolve into chaos and confusion if it doesn't get clear about, about how it operates as an organization. And as these churches were growing, they had to get clear about how they functioned in leadership and as an organization to support the growth and and fulfill the ever-expanding responsibilities to the people in the congregation and the people in the community. And adding urgency to this, it wasn't just individual churches churches growing as they grew. Churches in a region, they wanted to continue to operate together, to collaborate together. And that meant that they needed some sort of organizational and leadership structure to keep them aligned together. And the way they responded to that back in church history was by creating a clear leadership structure. They took these words from the New Testament and they used those as titles for different roles in that leadership structure. That is not wrong. You know what that is? That's wise. That's wise. What about our church? Well, our church, we have pastors. But our church also has a a board of folks who, who provide accountability and oversight and governance for our church, and we call that a board of elders. It is not wrong for our church to use one of the words to describe this position of pastor and use another word to describe another position of elders, but this is what that means. We have to be informed. Otherwise, we'll be mistaken as we read the New Testament and we'll think it meant originally a bunch of different different leadership positions. And this is why this is not walking down a pointless rabbit trail. This is why this is important. Because if we don't understand everything that I just explained, we will misunderstand what we read in the New Testament, but it's worse than that. Not only will you misunderstand, you will miss out. You will miss out on how this applies to you personally. Who were these leaders in the early church that were described as elders, overseers, and pastors? It's important to remember, where did did the the church that Peter was writing to, these churches, where did they meet? They often met in homes. And sometimes it wasn't safe enough to meet in homes, so they met in underground cemeteries called catacombs. They tended to be on the smaller size, they were more unstructured than structured. They were more informal than formal. They were organized and they had leadership. But if you could go back in time and participate and attend with one of those early churches, it would feel like going to a large small group more than what we're doing right now. So I want you to think about that and I'm gonna read kind of the responsibilities of these leaders. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing. God wants you to be not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. If you are a class leader, if you are a small group leader, if you are a ministry team leader, you should see yourself in this passage. You may not be a pastor. At Autumn Ridge. But you pastor at Autumn Ridge Church. You may not be on the elder board at Autumn Ridge Church. But you are the person that somebody sees as more experienced, more mature. And also a trusted person of influence. You may not be a staff member. But that doesn't mean that you're not managing and overseeing something important. If you are engaged in ministry, if you're a group leader, if you're a class leader, if you are a team leader. You should see yourself in this passage. It applies to you. And for those of us who are, who are in groups and those of us who are on teams, what should our response be? We should be grateful for the men and women who are serving in that capacity as leaders. And you know why they're doing it? They're not doing it because anybody's making them. They're doing it because they want to. They're not doing it for greedy reasons. I don't know if you know this, but small group leaders, they don't get any offering kickbacks, right? It doesn't happen. We are so blessed We are blessed as a church to have men and women who are eager to serve. We are blessed to have a church full of men and women who are willing to be an example to others of what it means to follow Jesus, and they take the call to leadership seriously. We've been talking about the universal call of all believers to leadership. We've been talking about that a lot this year. We've said this leadership is a destination of discipleship. If you follow Jesus, let me tell you, he will always lead you to leadership. Some of us, many of us, may have a position of leadership. All of us should have a disposition of leadership. And for everyone who is choosing to have the disposition of leadership, For everyone who sits in a position of leadership and you are using your giftedness, you are serving others, this next verse is for you. And when the chief shepherd, when the chief pastor appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. When you lead, when you serve, it is a big deal. And this right here, this is the picture of what leadership is supposed to look like. Leaders are shepherds. Can I share with you why this is so important? Shepherdless sheep are scattered sheep. and scattered sheep are vulnerable sheep. What animal are Christians compared to in the New Testament? This is what we need. We need leaders. And I bet I know what some of you guys are thinking right now. Because I've heard people say it to me over the years. Rick, this seems like a tall task. This is a big deal. I don't feel qualified for that. I love that response. What an amazing, appropriate response. I want to introduce you to a guy named John Chrysostom. You might pronounce his name John Chrysostom. He was the Archbishop of Constantinople towards the end of the fourth century. And he is not the first megachurch pastor in Christian history. He probably is the first megachurch pastor who was also a celebrity preacher. His nickname was John the Golden Mouth. If you guys want to call me Rick the Golden Mouth, it's probably not going to happen. He was awesome. And this is a guy, he put people on blast for greed. He put people on blast for their pride and abuse of power. Even though he was a celebrity, he didn't let it go to his head. He lived a humble life, and he was known as a friend to the poor. And I want you to hear his perspective about how do we handle the weight of leadership. He says this, he says the first qualities that a priest or bishop ought to possess is that he must purify his soul entirely of ambition of the office. If you wanna be a priest, the first thing you need to do is not want to be one. It is indeed a terrible temptation to covet this honor. And in saying this, I don't contradict St. Paul, but entirely agree with what he says, he's quoting, Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, what are his words? If a man seeks the office of bishop, he desires a good work. What is terrible is to desire the absolute authority and power of the bishop, but not the work itself. In his perspective, it's not a natural one. It's fair to say it's a supernatural one, and it really comes from the thinking of Jesus. It comes from the way that Jesus taught about what our relationship with power and authority and leadership should be. Jesus said this to his disciples. They had just been arguing over who's the best. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be, what's that word? Of a few of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. If you've been here throughout the series, I hope that you remember that before the spread of the gospel, humility was considered a vice, not a virtue. It was a word to describe people at the bottom of society, people who lost at life. It wasn't until Jesus came along that people, especially leaders, aspired to humility. Before that, it would have been nonsense to the rest of the world. This is the world's way with leadership. Leaders take power and serve themselves. That's the world's way, and I'm not trying to throw shade at anybody who's leading in a capacity and they're not a follower of Jesus, but this is really our chance to get honest about something. What do you observe as people get more power Do they tend to become more humble and more selfless? Is that what we observe? What is leadership like in Jesus' way? Leaders take responsibility and serve others. And if you'll bear with me, I want to bring one more observation in from the mind of Jesus. It's this. We don't ascend to leadership in the church. We descend into it. We don't ascend into leadership in the church, we descend into it. And for every person who is a leader or who would be a leader, we should be gripped by this. We should be challenged by this. We should be motivated by this. All of us, whatever there's someone who, 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 especially in the church world, that someone wants to be a leader, this is the kind of thing that we should be on the lookout for in them. And I'll, I'll make it Personal. I should only be tolerated and trusted as a pastor at Autumn Ridge. I should only be trusted and tolerated as a pastor at Autumn Ridge to the extent that I'm an example of this kind of mindset in my life and in my leadership. In the church, no leader is a big deal. Leadership's a big deal. But in the church, no leader is a big deal. Jesus is a big deal and leadership is a big deal. And while we're talking about it, believe it or not, this applies to all of us. Now the very next thing Peter writes, he lets us know, this applies to all of us. He says, in the same way, you who are younger submit yourselves to your elders. Some of you clothe yourselves with humility. Is that what it says? All of you, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. I wanna engage this in backwards order. Let's start off with acknowledging, isn't this true that sometimes in life that when there's someone who has a leadership position over us, they're an authority over us, maybe they have power we don't have, sometimes that just feels uncomfortable, doesn't it? And sometimes that can create anxiety. We're not talking about anything political or social. We're just talking about a common human experience. you got to report to somebody. Maybe it's your annual review. I don't know what it is, but there's somebody over you in a position of leadership or they have power or they have authority you don't have. Sometimes that could just kind of spark some insecurity or some anxiety. Well, in the church world, how are we supposed to respond to that? What does the gospel say? Number one, trust God. It is far more about our trust in Him than it has to do with anybody else. It's primarily about us and Him, not what other people are doing. And then secondly, we are going to wrap ourselves up. We're going to clothe ourselves with humility. People who lead, be humble. People who are being led, be humble. And then we're all going to adopt Following Jesus means we all adopt a disposition of submission. Every person. Now, this has been a theme throughout this letter from 1 Peter. We started back, hey, listen, everybody, submit to authorities and government. Whether you like it or not, do it. This is done out of reverence for Christ. Continuing out of reverence for Christ in the same way. Slaves, submit to your master's. In the same way, wives, submit to your husbands. In the same way, husbands, submit to your wives. Now, in the same way, those who are younger, submit to those who are older. Those who have less experience, submit to those who have more experience. Those who have less maturity, submit to those who have more maturity. We're gonna wrap ourselves up, all of us, all the time, and all situations, wrap ourselves up with humility and mutual submission. And this is what our church wants to do. Now, I know we don't do it perfectly, and I, we're not, I don't think we're the best example of it, but this is what we want to do. And this is what it looks like in our church. Jesus is at the top. That's what the crown represents. He's the king. He's the chief shepherd. He's the chief pastor. And he empowered apostles to teach authoritatively. And that is contained in the New Testament. So we happily, this will never change. We place ourselves underneath the authority of Scripture. Then our church has a board of elders. These are 10 individuals. They are empowered to make sure that our church continues to align with our mission, our vision, and our values, stays aligned with our statement of faith, They have a responsibility to make sure uh, that we are handling our finances and all of our resources with wisdom and integrity. And then we have pastors, pastors and staff, and we're responsible for all the operations, all the functions, all the strategy related to ministry, and probably our biggest job Our biggest job is to make sure that you, the members of the congregation, are empowered and resourced and have everything you need to engage in the work of the ministry. And then our church literally has hundreds of people who are serving as volunteers carrying out the amazing work of ministry inside and outside of this building. And then there's our congregation. And when we say congregation, we mean everybody. People who are leaders, people who are not leaders, people who just attend, people who aspire to leadership, people who think that's a bad word. It's everybody. And if this feels hierarchical to you, and that makes you feel uncomfortable, we can flip it upside down. Because remember this, in the church, we don't ascend into leadership. We descend into leadership. But just to make it kind of easy for me to walk through, I'm going to flip it back this way. Who gives our elders permission to lead? It's the congregation. The congregation are the ones who empowers our elders. Who gives our pastors and staff permission to lead? Let's use me for an example. I'm empowered by the elders to lead. And pastors are given the authority to hire staff and to carry out the functions of ministry. Who empowers this army of amazing men and women and even teenagers and kids to lead well they're empowered and resourced by the pastors and staff who gives the congregation permission to lead that comes from Jesus because remember leadership is a destination of discipleship following Jesus always leads to leadership may not be a position but it's always a disposition of leadership in our church this is our intent. This is what we are aiming at. We want to carefully and faithfully follow Scripture and be permeated in every aspect of our church with humility and mutual submission. There just shouldn't be any pride here. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it before, but do you know the literal meaning of all the words that are used to describe leaders in the local church? I'm gonna put them on the screen. Is there the literal meaning? Literal meanings of all the words used to describe leaders in the local church. Old man, old woman, servant, slave, manager, shepherd. Sounds like a bunch of arrogant people, right? Old man, old woman, servant, slave, manager, shepherd. The way that leadership is experienced at Autumn Ridge, the way that leaders are experienced at Autumn Ridge Church should be radically humble. And it should be refreshing. And it should be a million miles away, a million miles away from the way that leadership is commonly wielded in the world. Now, that doesn't feel radical enough to you this morning. Buckle up, buttercup because Peter immediately adds something else, appropriately, but something else into this conversation on humility and and, and leadership that some of us may not be ready for. As a matter of fact, some of us may not even have a category to know how to think about it. This is what he says. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, the God of all grace who called you to this eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast to him. Be the power forever and ever. Amen. So this first part of what we just read, is it literal or is it metaphorical? Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Literal or metaphorical? Well, it's both. The devil is not walking around in the form of a lion trying to eat you. But Satan is a very real person, a very real spiritual figure who is on the hunt for vulnerable sheep. If there's anybody who would say, Rick, I don't know how a serious-minded person can take that seriously I want you to write this down. You can't take Jesus seriously and not take Satan seriously. You can't take him seriously because he talked about this a lot. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about this. If you listen to the podcast or if you want to listen to the podcast, a new episode drops every Wednesday. I will share the full and unedited version with you this week. And the name of the podcast is Church is Messy. But back in January, a team of us uh, went to uh, Guinea And if you're not great with geography, that's a West African country. Uh, A lot of the people on the team are medical professionals and we worked with a hospital there. Uh, We put on a medical conference each day. Um, And the way that I contributed to that is I kicked off the conference each day by preaching a sermon. And then a local pastor, Pastor Otis and I, and another fantastic godly man from our church, we would pray with folks who wanted to be prayed for and we would provide pastoral counseling. And on the last day, a woman came to talk with us, and her name was Cece. And as she sat down, and um, there came a point in the conversation where we asked her if she wanted to trust in Jesus or to pray uh, to Jesus, and something flipped. She was there, but she was not there. And she looked at me with dead eyes, and guys, I'm not too embarrassed to tell you, I was scared the way she looked at me. And this was a very professional woman. She was dressed in a, in a lovely white and black dress with a matching hat. She's a nurse. And she's sitting there in this gazebo. And at the name of Jesus, she just starts thrashing, through, throws herself on the floor. There's a man holding her head, trying to keep her from banging her head on the ground. We're doing our best to hold her, her limbs to keep her from hurting herself. And the whole time we are praying like crazy. And throughout this ordeal, she would say things like, this is my wife, this is my body, you can't have her. And there's a point that she began to, to growl and snarl and grunt. And then that gave way to, the only way I know how to describe it is defiant laughter. And then what, this went on for what felt like forever. And we were just praying as hard as we could, Jesus, would you rescue this woman? Would you free her from this demon that is inside of her? And after some time, she came to peace. She sat up. We helped her back into her chair. She had no idea how she got there. She didn't know who she was. I mean, she didn't know where she was. She knew who she was. She didn't know where she was. And she was grateful beyond words. She felt like she talked about how she had, felt like she had her body back for the first time in a long time. She didn't feel weak and confused anymore. She felt strong. She'd been wearing glasses. She took her glasses off. She's like, I could see fine. She's not a believer, but she had been spending time with Christians, and you gotta understand that in this country, you don't do things to get attention. She had a Bible. She had been keeping it under her mattress because she was afraid for her family or anybody else to find out. Many times when people become a Christian or they're exploring Jesus, they keep it very secret because they don't want anyone to know because persecution is real and painful. And I saw a woman there's nothing that can convince me that this wasn't real. I saw a woman freed in Jesus' name from a very real demonic spirit. And sometimes we get to see it clearly right in front of us. But there is always very real spiritual, there are very real spiritual forces at play behind all the ugliness, all the nastiness, all the hurt, all the war, wars, all the, all the ideologies. And social movements that harm people, they are at work trying to wreak havoc in this world. And we resist by standing fast in our faith. And in the aftermath of that moment, this is the only way I know to describe it, I have never felt so small in my life as I did that day. But I've never felt more confident either. And this is why this is an appropriate thing for Peter to interject especially after talking about leadership and humility because at the end of the day, we are all sheep and we depend on and we live under the protection of the chief shepherd. We have no cause for pride whatsoever, but we have every reason for confidence and courage because the chief shepherd is with us and is watching over us. This is how we get to the end. This is the end of the letter from 1 Peter. He writes this. With the help of Silas, whom I regarded as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you, and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. He said, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her her greetings. He's probably talking about a church in Rome. And so does my son Mark, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, I'm all for taking the Bible seriously, but I ain't kissing one of you. And you don't kiss me either. We're just gonna let this one pass. Let's end our time by focusing on this one. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as faithful brother, I've written to you briefly. That's a lie, Peter. This is a long letter. Encouraging you, testifying, this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Do you know what happened in these churches uh, in this area of Asia Minor today would be Turkey? Do you know what happened there? Do you know the impact that they've had on you? To see it, I want to turn to the scholar, uh, Karen Jobes. She writes this. She said, we may surmise that in no small part because of this letter and the faithfulness of those who received it, well-established churches flourished in all five of these regions by AD 180. Their bishops attended the great councils of the second through fourth centuries, where the doctrines were forged that Christians hold dear today. We have no evidence at all to suggest that any apostle spent any meaningful time around any of these churches and yet giants of the faith heroes and heroines of the faith emerged out of these churches people like basil the great gregory of Nyssa, macrina gregory of nazianzus and if you've never heard those names it's no big deal you don't have to know those names but what you need to know is that these are men and women of the faith who have encouraged and inspired millions of jesus followers over the century and believe it or not you are impacted by that and it all started. It all started with a ragtag group of churches who took this letter to heart. And they began to see themselves for who they were in Christ. And they let that shape and frame and drive everything they did with their lives. And they never could have known. They never could have known the global impact that they would have. And you know else who doesn't know? You. You don't know the kind of impact that you are going to have. You can't know who will stand with Christ tomorrow because you resolve to stand fast today. Would you see yourself for who you are in Christ? Would you let that shape and frame and drive and determine everything that you do? And would you trust Jesus to use that in ways that you and I don't even know how to imagine? This is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. May we stand fast together.